Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunan here. I'm the co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. I'm pumped for you guys to hear from my guest today, the very wise Kim John Payne. First, though, I want to say a quick thank you to the team at Swarovski, who we partnered up with to bring you today's episode. We did a really fun editorial piece with Swarovski a few weeks ago. It revolved around their new Mother's Day collection. We featured a few first-time moms for the story and shared some favorite pieces from the new Swarovski collection. The collection itself includes stackable ring sets, oversized studs, and a pendant necklace in the shape of a bursting sun. And yes, there is just as much sparkle everywhere as you'd want from Swarovski. To check out their Mother's Day collection, visit a local Swarovski store or head to swarovski.com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Kim John Payne's work focuses on the feeling of overwhelm that a lot of us walk around with today the sense that we can't keep up with the pace of our own lives, which is definitely a sentiment I can relate to. As an educator, school consultant, and family counselor, Kim looks for ways that we can build deep connections with our children, which he writes about in his book, Simplicity Parenting, Using the Extraordinary Power of Less to Raise Calmer, Happier, and More Secure Kids. And today, Kim is sharing practical strategies and tools that can help us all bring more resiliency and joy to our lives. Sometimes people, I, I feel, misunderstand having balance in family life, simplicity, by saying, oh, that, oh, that's so nice. But that's not the way the world is. Mm-hmm. It actually is not only the way the world is, it's the way the world is going to be. And if we want to have our kids be able to cope with that, we, we need to give them space to actually cultivate those skills. And they won't cultivate those skills if they're always in super-structured activity. 
Let's cut to my chat with Kim John Payne. Thanks so much for being here. I have to say it's a little, I feel a little naked in front of you as a parent because <laughs> of, I think about my own house and the abundance of stuff and the well-being of my kids. And I'm like, oh my God, I am, it's probably not really the most simple parent. So <laughs> I loved your book and we can definitely talk about all the ways in which I can probably do better too. But where did you, I thought that the way you sort of strung this concept together is both startling and amazing. So can you explain how you came to believe that kids these days have PTSD? Yeah, great to speak with you, Elise. Yeah. Well, it, be, it kind of began for me a little while back, actually, way back, in that I was working in a group home for kids and very stressed kids, and you know, and I, I saw a lot of I saw a lot of that up up close. But at the time, I was just you know, as an undergrad in college and taking courses in what was then called trauma response. And as the professor would talk about combat veterans that weren't doing so well, I was thinking about the kids in my group home. He was absolutely describing them. Mm. Right, so bit of a puzzle. He became a mentor of sorts. And so later on, when I sort of was starting to put this together a little bit, he was talking about nervous, jumpy, hypervigilant, over-controlling. And I was just thinking, yep, that's Warren, that's Mitch, that's mm -hmm. Debbie. That, and I was thinking about my kids. So, yeah, I, after I finished my studies, I decided to go and uh, travel and volunteer in Southeast Asia, which was pretty turbulent at the time. And there again, in, in these slums and in the, particularly in the Thai Cambodian refugee camps, I just saw it again. Nervous, jumpy, hypervigilant, over-controlling kids, night terrors. Or, but, you know, in both populations, these weren't combat veterans, but they, they were highly stressed mm -hmm. kids. Only, you know, it was supposed to be just combat veterans. Mm -hmm. So after that was done, I decided to study it, actually. So I went to the UK to do some study and had a little um, private counseling practice. And through the door came nervous, jumpy, hypervigilant, over-controlling kids. And at that point, you know, it was a bit disturbing, actually. That was in some ways more disturbing than the other environments. Mm -hmm. Because these were just typical kids from different economic backgrounds, you know, like a wide range, wide range of sort of ethnic, social backgrounds. But there it was. Mm -hmm. They looked just like wartime kids. Maybe not, not sort of deep red, but they were still amber into red, so mm -hmm. to speak. They sure weren't in the amber into green kind of stage. It really set me wondering what, what was going on. At the time, brain science, there's a lot of research into brain science that was just coming out. And so I started looking into it and it was a little bit, it was pointing in a direction that stress could be cumulative. It wasn't conclusive. It is now, mm -hmm. but it wasn't then. So I, I just started thinking about this as the undeclared war on childhood. Mm. You know, there was just this base beat of too much, too soon, too sexy, too young going on in childhood, only to become the new normal. Right. No, it's so true. I was thinking about the one, one of the sections of your book, Simplicity Parenting, when you're talking about stuff, and we can dig into that, but you talk about how grandparents these days are often sort of stunned when they apprehend sort of the sheer mass and number of 
our kids' toys. Mm -hmm. That's certainly in that it cuts across socioeconomic classes. It's not just wealthy kids have tons of toys. It's everywhere. It's just plastic. And that's been my experience. I mean, my parents are appalled and sort of forewarned. Anytime we spend Christmas with them, they're sort of like pre-checking, is this going to be gross? Can we keep this under control? But yeah, I mean, it is wild. Like, And I know there are many reasons. Toys are everywhere. Kids are pushing us. There's a ton of marketing to kids. But like, what's the... What happens? What is that doing to our children? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a. You've got some uh, good grandparents there. If they're onto that, good for yeah. them. Good for them because grandparents can often compensate because they. A lot of kids' grandparents grew up when they didn't have so much, and so they compensate by giving too much. Right. So they, yeah, you got lucky. Yeah. <laughs> Just the avalanche of of toys and books and clothes and. It's it's hard, you know. The average American kid has over 150 toys per kid, and that means the 3,000-piece Lego set counts as one, right? right? Just one. And if you've got two or three kids, you're now you're up over 500. To- and it's just one of the things that our coaches do. We have these Simplicity Parenting coaches. We've got over 1,000 of them wow. all around the world. It's amazing. This movement is just really blossomed all over the world. And, you know, one of the things that they report in is pretty much the same as what I found too, is is that when you start dialing back the amount of toys, books, clothes in general in the environment, the kids play better together. They play more creatively because if, if you dial back the amount of toys and just cycle in maybe have 10 or 15 toys, cycle some in, cycle some out. You know, mm-hmm. just get rid of the stuff that isn't useful anymore, that I don't play with it anymore. It was just annoying, the unrelenting, gifting, naughty uncle. Yeah. You know, gives this sort of stuff. You just, you just sort of cycle them out or actually throw them out. And then the keepers, you know, you may be left with about 30, 40 keepers, cycle them in, cycle them out. The thing that many people find in this, in this, that, that, that are really practicing simplicity and balance in their homes is the kids play better together. You know, I remember visiting one dad who had bought a, a, a real live four wheel drive little car that a kid could sit in and actually, you know, it was for real. And the mum wasn't too sure. And she said, show him, honey, you know, show him. <laughs> and so they showed me and I said, wow, that's amazing. But it's really clean. And, she, and he said, yeah, the kid doesn't pay too much with it. I said, really? And he said, no, nah, he prefers to play with the box it came in. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I saw the box and it was a clearly a well-loved. It could have been a rocket, could have been a store. It could have been any number of things. That's the sort of simple toys that kids love. We know it, you know, we, that's the way many of us grew up too. And those toys kids have to do something with. They have to actually get inside them. And that, in terms of the brain science, relates directly to cooperation. When kids are creative, they're cooperative. So giving kids fewer toys, simpler toys, will help them play better together. Mm-hmm. And that we've had that kind of feedback from so many thousands of people thinking, yeah, that's really counterintuitive. You know, how can they play better together? When there's, few, when there's less stuff, but that's the way it works out. Yeah, and it's really space. I mean, it's interesting. I'm sure you would agree reading your book. I'm like, oh, here's the blueprint for Marie Kondo. This is like early work that predates this idea of creating space in your life and sparking joy and 
thinking about what you want to carry forward with you. All of these themes are actually sort of in, in oh, yeah. this concept. And I see that with my kids too, where it's like, it can be paralyzing. We live in a very small house. They share a room and it's, it's really cute and it's very well organized, but it is shelf, you know, floor to ceiling shelving and they don't engage. I love books. I buy them compulsively because I'm like, oh, it's a book. Oh, you're grimacing. I know. It's like how everyone should be surrounded by books. Right. But you're right. They don't really come off the shelves. No, you know, kids use them as construction material. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? What I think about books, particularly, I'm I'm with you. I love books. But what is rare is precious. I love them, so I want to make them precious. And so, is precious. I love that. Yeah, you know, and it's the same when kids and you get rid of a lot of these toys, the comment we hear in one way or another over and over and over, because I went into people's homes, I'd go into people's homes from wake up time to bedtime, like usually over about three or four visits, right? And I'd hear the kids say it, you know, I'd hear them say, oh, I didn't know I had so many toys. But the mum and dad had just got rid of a couple of hundred of them. Mm-hmm. And it was only then that they discovered you know, wow, I've got so many, right? Because mm-hmm. now they could focus as opposed to being swamped yeah. by a toy tsunami, a book tsunami, a clothes tsunami. Now they can focus on it. Yeah. And so the same deal, you know, with, with, uh, with clothes, just seasonalize them. Some come in, some come out. And just it's, it just gives so much space and breath to a family it's beautiful it really is and it's very doable that's yeah. the thing that i love about it. it's really simple to do and it's a foothold on some of the other things that one can do to balance and simplify kids lives yeah and i liked that idea too of the rhythm you know going and observing people's days and i think about our own i think we are good at rhythm and schedule and because i have boys i don't I don't actually shop for them compulsively when it comes to clothing. So they don't, I'm not overwhelmed in that way. And it is, it just makes it so easy. Mm. Let's talk about rhythm and let's talk about, and then let's talk about schedule. Cause I know schedule is a really, really tricky one. Mm. Yeah. The rhythm, one, one of the things that I noticed over the years and all our coaches all, all over the planet noticed too, is that, is that resilient kids have rhythm, mm. you know, resilient kids have predictability in their lives. They have these moments of, of decompression and, they, they, it's, and it's predictable and they can connect. So when you've got rhythm in a home, and I don't mean boring routines, I mean warm rhythms, you know, things that you do together, the, the way a child wakes up in the morning, just the same way, you know. Like the rituals way, almost? Little, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a ritual. And, the, and, and values, family values and connections are made little by little, little by little. You know, we hear a lot about having child-centered homes these days. And in one way, I I get it. I know what people mean, but I actually, strictly speaking, don't believe in child-centered homes. I have seen strong kids raised when it's value-centered homes, when values are at the Mm -hmm. center of a home, because it's too much power for a kid to be in the center. And Often when I hear, you know, we have a child-centered home, actually I look at it and I think, I don't know, that's a child-led home. Mm. Kids are calling the shots. 
Right. And it's just not not healthy. It's too much for them. They feel it's stressful to to too much choice ha- to have that much choice. Yeah. You know, you know, like if if like just to ask children, okay, what shall we have for breakfast? Your morning is done right there. Right. <laughs> right? It's just like, do you want the yellow bucket or the red bucket when you're taking your two boys down the beach? Your morning is over as well, right? It's it's more like you may choose. You may choose between these three breakfast cereals. It's okay with me. When little kids need you may choices. When they grow up, that's going to change to shared choices and then guided choices in these three phases. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when they're teenagers, then it's guided. But rhythm, what rhythm does is it really establishes connection because it's warm. It's great to do things with mum or mum or dad. Just they do things in certain ways and kids connect with and they know what to expect because in a world where, where things are choppy, you know, and it's getting that way. Very few of us had to cope with what our kids have to cope with now, mm-hmm. right? You know, very few of us. And so the having these moments of predictability through the day give a child, it's almost like a safe base, safe right. haven. And then they can cope with the choppiness. doesn't all have to be, you know, gentle and rhythmical. It's a little bit like crop rotation, right? You know, mm-hmm. where a third, like on a farm to have healthy soil, a third has to, the time has to be, the crop has to be fallow. A right. third has to be cover crop and a third is cropping, right? And that that's what our kids, there's, there's a metaphor there, right? A lot of wisdom in that. A third of our kids' lives just needs to be downtime. Yeah. Third is just creative playtime. And a third is full on, busy. Uh, I have no problems kids being busy, but it's when that busyness gets out of order and takes up too much space, which is why um, I often talk about, as you mentioned, about scheduling. Yeah. You know, that kind of that overscheduling, which it's hard. It's hard because it's become the new normal. Yeah. And I feel that pressure immensely as a, a mom and a working mom. And the pressure I think comes from, well, I put it on myself, right? But it's in the observation of other parents and their anxiety about the performance of their own child and their exposure to myriad extracurricular activities. And I really don't have Max, my oldest, in anything because he has a, a younger brother who sleeps all afternoon, essentially. But it's, I feel a lot of pressure and sort of incipient anxiety of like, am I supposed to be, is he supposed to be in soccer? Is he supposed to be in music? Like, am I not being enriching? And it sort of came to a head because he goes to public school and we had the strike. And I'm on a group email with a bunch of moms who I love. And there was so much, like a frantic amount of emailing about strike activities, camps, classes, and one mom who who I love sent an email about how she was putting together a Friday activity that was gluten-free pizza, of course, and with rotating educational activities and then a hike to talk about the canyon. And it was amazing. But I was like, holy shit, <laughs> you know, like, oh, my God, like Max is Max is going to be at the park with his little brother. But this makes me feel like I am a terrible mother that I am not anticipatorily enriching his life. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, you don't want to max max out, right? No, totally. One mom wrote back and was like, I love this idea, but I'm really enjoying, we're really enjoying the unstructured time. 
Well, good for her. I know. I was like, oh, I bet she read this book. You know, the, the, <laughs> but, but one of the things, you know, it, it's kind of interesting because the world that our kids are going into is a rapidly unstructuring world. Mm-hmm. We, we know that, you know, by, I did the math on the, the rate of self-employment by 2025, and it'll be over 60% of kids wow. that'll be self-employed, right? Now, anyone who's self-employed knows it just takes a lot of grit. It takes a lot of creativity. It takes a lot of interpersonal skills. It just takes a lot of that kind of determination, tenacity. Anyone who's self-employed knows that. And kids learn that. They don't learn that from structured stuff because it's structured for them. Mm. They're going into a, a rapidly destructuring world. So simplifying and balancing for kids is not a wish to go back to Little House on the Prairie or Dennis the Menace or 1950s you know, uh, milk, and, milk and cookies. It's actually the world they're going into. If we want to give our kids a flying start, a real start, the irony of this is that we'll give them, we'll them downtime to play where they can learn creativity, self-creativity, not creativity you know, through structured play through structured activity, through always being told what to do, through being hauled from one activity to another, like soccer on Monday and Wednesday, ballet on Tuesday and Thursday, and mm-hmm. I don't know, psychotherapy on Friday, you know, right, to cope with it. It's, it's <laughs> like, true. you know what I mean? The, the world, some, sometimes people, I, I feel, misunderstand having balance in family life, simplicity, by saying, oh, that, oh, that's so nice, but that's not the way the world is. Mm-hmm. It actually is not only the way the world is, it's the way the world is going to be. And if we want to have our kids be able to cope with that, we, we need to give them space to actually cultivate those skills. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they won't cultivate those skills if they're always in superstructured activity. So that piece of scheduling, it's kind of interesting because my, my grandfather fought in the Second World War, right? You know, and the economic um, collapse in the 30s and we often we often refer to those people as the greatest generation because they're amazing they created something out of nothing much of what we stand on today was rebuilt in those years so why do we want to give our kids everything and figure it's going to make them great it's not mm-hmm. it makes them weak makes them entitled Mm. And just allowing them the space to create what they're doing, those funny little things that they do, you know, it's all in terms of the brain science is really firing. It's building up all that activity, all that native intelligence that's going to be able to help them in the coming years. It doesn't hinder them one little. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. 
To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. A little bit. Mm. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. I still remember my first Mother's Day. I was exhausted, for sure, but mostly still in awe that we now had this growing little person in our family who we loved in a way that I hadn't fully imagined and who was redefining for us every day what it could mean to be a family. There's probably no feeling like becoming a mom for the first time, but every Mother's Day since has still felt pretty sweet to me. I also just like that we have a day on the calendar that provides a reason to thank any and all of the women in our lives who have supported us, nurtured us, and been a mother figure of sorts when we've needed it. If you're planning on giving a gift to any of those women in your life this Mother's Day, you might have already hit up the Mother's Day gift guides on Goop. If you're still looking, I feel you. If you're having a hard time remembering when Mother's Day is this year, it's May 12th. And if you want to do something special this Mother's Day, you can check out the story we just did in collaboration with Swarovski and some of our favorite new moms. The story was actually about how first-time moms mark the occasion for themselves, and it got an upgrade with a new collection of jewelry and accessories that Swarovski launched time to Mother's Day. The collection includes a range of styles, from somewhat minimalist lines to more intricately detailed and feminine designs. A highlight of the launch is a sunshine line, which includes stackable ring sets and oversized studs and polished rose gold and silver tones. As you might guess from the name, the hero of this line is a pendant necklace in the shape of a striking sun. To check out all the pieces in Swarovski's Mother's Day collection, visit a local Swarovski store or head to Swarovski.com. Going into 2019, I decided to start drinking more water. My hydration issues were so infamous around the office that my secret Santa gave me an electronic water bottle that syncs up to an app on my phone to remind me to start drinking. I know, it doesn't get much goopier than that. Now, months in, this has turned into something of a competitive sport for me. I feel like I'm always drinking. The first time I had flow alkaline spring water was at our InGoop Health Summit in New York City this March, and it was a big hit. So if you're coming to InGoop Health in Los Angeles on May 18th, our water fridge will be stocked with Flow again, and I'll see you there. Flow has original alkaline water and then several organic flavor blends, like cucumber and mint, blackberry and hibiscus, and my favorite, in case you're curious, lemon ginger. They're made without the sugar, artificial sweeteners, calories, and GMOs that are unfortunately found in a lot of other grab-and-go options. Flow has more healthy minerals than most bottled waters, and it's naturally alkaline with a pH of 8.1. That means the minerals in Flow, like magnesium, calcium, and potassium, come from the earth, not an artificial process. And what's also appealing about Flow is that you can easily take the packs with you when you're on the go, or far from a good water source. And since we're working on being a plastic-free office, and I try to lead by example at home, I appreciate that Flow is mostly sustainable paperboard packaging, and that their cap is plant-based. Also appreciated, if you sign up for a monthly Flow subscription, you'll save 10% on each order, plus shipping is always free. Head to flowhydration.com for 30% off your order or first month of subscription. Just type in promo code GOOP30 at checkout. That's flowhydration.com and use code GOOP30 for 30% off your order. 
Okay, let's hear more from Kim John Payne. The other thing that I feel like we, and speaking of my mother and, and Max's grandparents, we've sort of enabled the generation to resist boredom. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but yeah. there's this like, I remember at one point, maybe it was over Christmas break, Max said something like, I'm bored. And my mom was like, I'm mortally offended. For her, when we were kids, like boredom was not like, she was like, I'm not here to entertain you. The world is not here to entertain you. You need to learn how to entertain yourself. That was her whole, like, bring a book. And you got really lucky with I your know, I, d- I know. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I have my own issues, let's be real. But, um, yeah, but there are some things that are moving in the right direction. You're yeah. like, if my kid comes to me, i got two kids, right? And they're 17 and 19 years old now. But when if they were young, they'd come to me and say, Dad, we're bored. And the little one always says, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and, it's, and it's like, my response is, oh dear, mm. that's it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because boredom is the precursor to creativity. Mm. Think about it. You know, you let your kids be bored and by the way, separate them for a while. But 20 minutes later, 15 minutes later, creativity breaks out that goes on for days and days. Games that they create, funny little things they do, worlds that they're involved in. We can hold them back from screens and just let them be bored. Then their creativity just starts to really build. And again, this is what's going to be needed for the future. There are a lot of kids who can exist in structured environments because that's the way they've been raised. But jobs for those kids are shrinking and shrinking. By 2050, I did the math, on that bell curve, 15% of jobs will be structured and benefited. Yeah. So that's the world our kids are going into. So if, because, and that's also part of my problem with iPads and screens and such, is that it's all very creative stuff that kids are sitting very passively watching, but it's someone else's creativity. Mm. It's not theirs. It's someone else's which they're passively consuming. Why else would have Steve Jobs not wanted computers for his kids? Y- mm-hmm. You know, right? Yeah. He, he didn't have screens and such for his kids until they were, they were strictly limited. And he only gave them much, much later on in their life. Because and his whole rationale for that is, why would I want to give my kids this stuff? I want them to be creative like I have been. Mm-hmm. So he just packages it up in really elegant, minimalistic packages and sells it to us bull schmucks, right. right? But but he didn't have it. And a lot of top execs, I was just talking to the guy who designed the iPhone just a couple of days ago in San Francisco, no tech in his home. And, you know, it's the same all yeah. throughout the tech world. These people send their kids to schools, usually Waldorf schools, with little or no tech involved. There's no yeah. screens, right? Because they want their kids to be creative. They want their kids to be self-motivated, not just passively consuming someone else's creativity. Is there a place for, I say this hopefully, because I definitely need a little bit of TV in my house in order to tame my wild beasts, is there an acceptable amount where, particularly if, you know, my Max, my oldest, goes deep on, like, wildlife shows that explore Cody character? And the stuff that he comes out with is quite, I mean, he is well-versed and some science. Is any of that okay? Yeah, you know, it's such a judgment call. It's a really individual call. I was talking to one mum about the, the, the programs, the, particularly the nature programs. Yeah. And she said, you know, she held back on screens for a long time. 
And rather than get cable and such, she got a TV but she, and she got a DVD player and, and would show, because a child loved nature, was yeah. always poking around the creek. Whenever he'd go to the park, he was always looking in the pond, amazed by tadpoles and just would bring really questionable stuff home. You yes, know. And, very familiar uh, with that. Right. <laughs> and uh, so she got him these videos, right? And like like these Nat Geo videos where you can go inside the cell of a bee's eye, mm-hmm. you know, and see, and you could fly on the wing of a snow goose, like right on that. And amazing stuff. Amazing, amazing. And she said within two weeks, he didn't want to go down the creek anymore because it was boring. Mm. But he could cite lots of scientific stuff, but the experiential side of things started to slip. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a little bit... You know, what? that's where I go with screens is that I want little kids to have lived experience, not, you know, and that needs to be balanced. In fact, I think that needs to take up a bigger space in their lives than the more cerebral, cognitive, more just, just kind of brainy kid stuff. Because it's the lived, again, it's the lived experience, you know, like... My kids, you know, obviously didn't have screens growing up. And I often get asked this, if they don't have screens and you don't, don't you want your, your kids to be citizens of the world, right? right? Okay. Don't you want them to know about about global warming? Don't you want them to, to know about what's happening with Black Lives Matters, with LGBTQ rights? Don't you want them to, don't you really, it's, it's a conduit to the world. Now... For me, I'll give you an example. You know, my my own daughter, who's nineteen now. We, um, she was really into she was really into poking around the you know down the park in the creek or whatever. She's one of those kids, like like Max, mm-hmm. one of those kids. Gave her lots and lots of time. Didn't talk to her about global warming much at all. Didn't talk to my uh, other daughter about all of the things that were going wrong in the world. Not when they were little, because I want to, them to know that the people in their lives are beautiful people. They're lovely people mm-hmm. around our neighborhood. There are good people at their school. There are good teachers. There are Because how can they change the world into something better unless they have a template of what is good? And what is beautiful, because sooner or later, they're going to know that stuff's wrong. Mm -hmm. It's really this is going wrong. And I remember taking uh, my we went cross country, my wife and I with our girls on back of our motorbikes. And we rode from Massachusetts, San Francisco, and then way up. We did a long motorcycle ride, wanted to introduce them to their country. And we went through West Virginia deliberately mm-hmm. and we looked at open cut mines you know we didn't do the disney stuff we went to like you know? <laughs> so, and she was 14 and i still remember looking at open her looking at open cut mines with tears just streaming down her face mm. and i said well, what's up love and she said it actually hurts me mm. to see that now she's turned into a bit of an eco warrior now she is really strong in in that world and that's where she's going into that world I don't know that she would have gone into that if we just had have come at her head with lots and lots of information about nature. It wouldn't have been a visceral reaction. And I think with little kids, soon enough, they'll know stuff is going wrong. And, you know, 12, 13, 14, yeah, yeah, we can start telling them about all that kind of stuff. But when they're little, they need to immerse themselves in their competency. They need to... You know, my kids built this treehouse. They must have used 10 pounds of nails. Honestly, the amount of nails they used in that treehouse, it'll be there for the next three or four epochs, I think. But they got that feeling of competency. So now 
I watch my daughter actually organizing and helping lead marches, leading ecology marches. My younger daughter leads the Spectrum group, the LGBTQ rights in her school. And she's out there in the kind of amongst the forefront of doing this stuff. But we told them nothing about that when they were young. Mm -hmm. It's just that they feel competent and confident now. So it's a little bit like the sports metaphor or the running metaphor, the marathon, slow start, strong finish. Mm. I love that. And I think it's it's particularly in today's climate, like, and it's really hard, obviously, to protect your kids from news. And sort of early on, right after the election, it was like Max just would not stop talking about Trump. And like, Trump's a bad guy. And right. I was like, this is kind of funny coming from my, at that point, like three and a half year old. But mm-hmm. I was like, we can't right. feed this. I also didn't want him to feel like the adults in his life have no control right. over the world. Yeah. I appreciate the idea that like our kids don't necessarily need to be obsessing over global warming, foreign affairs, like worrying about North Korea, right? Like that's our job. And mm-hmm. um, we made that mess. They didn't. It's up for us. It's up right. to us to tidy up. They need to be raised strong enough so that the so that the issues that are going to come up in their lifetime, they're going to be strong enough, competent, and capable enough to take care of. You know, I went to a marketing conference. A little while ago, and I wanted to do some like marketing to kids. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to go. I wanted to sort of be embedded. I went undercover, and you know, they didn't spot you. They I, I, well, that's a problem with being a C grade celebrity. I do get noticed, right? So I, I so so I was yeah undercover a little bit, and uh, we got a new name. I don't know if you know this, Elise. We got a new name. We we are no longer as called parents. This whole marketing conference and all the major com- many 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 of the major companies were there. We have a new name. We're called we're called purchasing friction. Mm. Purchasing friction. Oh, that makes me sick. Okay, and this conference <laughs> for two days was designed on how to remove purchasing friction. Now think about what that actually means. How to remove parents from children's lives. So that then they can, and this conference, it was also, you know, giving the data on it. And in the United States alone, $16 billion a year is spent on marketing to little kids, Mm -hmm. right? So they know if they get brand loyalty before the age of four, they've got it for life. And there are all kinds of examples. And people were applauding loudly various various automobile companies that had succeeded in getting kids brand loyalty before the age of four. So... To hang in there with our kids, to be able to really, in a sense, be, we want to be raising our kids, not some force outside the family. We we want the values that we've got. Like earlier on in the conversation, I mentioned, you know, this kind of pretty grim stuff that we're living in an undeclared war in childhood. Mm -hmm. That's like, when there's war in the world, what can you do? You feel pretty helpless, but we can declare peace in our homes. Home by home by home, by giving ourselves enough time to have a connection with our kids and that their values will come from the family, not from some voracious marketing for. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. 
It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We're going to take a quick break. There are a handful of practitioners that I've met through Goop who have changed my life, and Lauren Roxborough was one of the first. Lauren is a body alignment expert. In practice, this means she helps put people back together or keeps them feeling whole. Years ago, we started calling her the body whisperer at Goop. Maybe this sounds hyperbolic, but as far as nicknames go, this one really fits. A one-on-one session with Lauren is special. Every time I get off her table, Having been stretched and rolled by her and manipulated, I leave somehow feeling a few inches taller. She is my favorite person to rebound with, which means jumping on a mini trampoline. And I think it's safe to say my fascia has never been healthier, thanks to Lauren's foam rolling routines. Fascia, for those who don't know, is the connective tissue that wraps our muscles. What most impresses me about Lo, though, is the way she's been able to impact many more people than she could ever see in her small private practice. And a lot of this has been through her books. Her latest book, which I love, is called The Power Source, the hidden key to ignite your core, empower your body, release stress, and realign your life. It's a tall order, but the book does not let you down. Lowe begins with the pelvic floor, breaking down why it's an integral component of our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. And then she moves through the rest of the body, putting together an easy-to-follow program for overall physical and energetic well-being. This is a book that I know I'll pick up for years to come whenever I need to return to a low routine for letting go of tension, strengthening the body, or finding some inner balance. You can pre-order a copy of The Power Source by Lauren Roxborough today. Just head to your online bookseller of choice. And now, back to today's conversation. So can you, that that process of creating peace in the home, is it do you start with stuff? Do you start with stuff? Do you just start taking things out? How do you know when your child is sort of, I think you call it a fever? Yeah, I call it like a soul fever mm-hmm. or an emotional fever, you know, and that's what's so help, hopeful for me is that when our kids have got a fever, we know they're going to be sick. I'll give you an example. My agent rang me one day and she said, oh, this is a really big show, some, some uh, big national breakfast show. Right, mm-hmm. where you sit on in a fake sofa for three minutes and right. ch- chat with some really you know amazing looking people with incredible teeth, and I said, "Ah, oh, you know, I'm not going to be able to go." And she said, "Why not?" And I said, "Ah, oh, you know, it's I, I, I just can't do it." And she said, "Kim, it's not Fox." Because I'd been on the show with Fox, and it was, that was a weird place to be, I tell you. Uh, and I said, no, 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 my daughter, her name is Safira. Safira is uh, going to be sick on Thursday, and my agent said. 
but it's just Monday. And now she knows I'm weird, right? But the, <laughs> but you could just tell. You know when you can tell your kids cooking a fever. Yeah, they're a little off. Eyes are a little glassy. You know, it's just you know something's up. A little more antsy. Well. Likewise, when our kids have got emotional fevers and they're not being overwhelmed with the virus, they're being overwhelmed with life, Mm -hmm. with life that's booming and buzzing and moving too fast, their behavior gets really off. You just know, hey, that's not them. That is not who they are. Now, when our kids have got a physical fever, we know to quieten it all down. We know to simplify the food, just sit quietly with them, just give them some time off school because they've got a fever, they're sick. Likewise, when our kids have got an emotional fever, a soul fever, I think at an instinctual level, all around the world, parents are saying, we need to slow it on up. Mm-hmm. We, we really do. Otherwise, they're going to have this fever year after year. Now, you, you imagine those five or six days of fever when your kid's really sick, probably two or three of them high fevers, and then walking off it. Five or six days is bad enough with a physical fever. An emotional fever for five or six years is mm-hmm. just like a sentence. A child is not going to thrive. And a parent, just everything becomes hard behaviorally. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest pieces of feedback, really consistent all around the world, is when you simplify and balance, your kids are much easier to, to guide. Mm-hmm. There's just not the behavioral issues. And when they come up, the kids have got it. They're just a little bit more malleable, softer. You can get it back on track quicker because they're not in fight or flight. They're not just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. So, in that same way, when you simplify your kid's life when they're ill, you just do the same thing for their soul fever. Yeah, you, you know, you you really question the scheduling, and you just start to pull back the scheduling and say, like, I remember one mum who years ago they were called efficiency experts and terrifying person <laughs> and she she got a calendar out back when you used to write you know on calendars and she would she had a c and an s thing going on and what she did is that um, a c stood for calming s stood for stimulating mm. so if there was a very stimulating day the next day would have to be a c day and then if there was a double S day, like a really big, stimulating, like a whole big deal going on, then she would want two C days from her husband, actually. And, you know, because he would razz the kids all the time. It's been happening for hundreds of years. <laughs> and so she balanced her day, between her week between C and S. And she had a child diagnosed with ADD. And after a year, it was slow, right? But after a year of balancing the kids' lives... She got her child's end-of-year report, and there wasn't a single mention of his hyperactivity, not mm. one single mention. And she showed me the previous report, which was just full. Every single sub, uh, you know, subject area was full of can't pay attention, always moving. That was a kid with amygdala hijack. You know, the fight-or-flight part of his brain was just pumping adrenaline, cortisol. When you calm a child's life down, now, is he prone to hyperactivity? Yeah, of course he is. But, when you, but the same thing that is a kid's disorder is actually their gift. It's the same thing. It's just a choice whether we apply cumulative stress or cumulative simplicity. Thanks for listening to my chat with Kim John Payne. You can learn more about his work at simplicityparenting.com and check out his book, which is also called Simplicity Parenting. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. 
And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.